I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Last week we looked in chapter 7 at the struggle in every Christian's life. We called it the civil war within. It's the battle between the new you and the old you. It's the battle that you encounter every time you try to obey God in the strength of your own, fr- own flesh. And it was a picture of defeat. Paul was frustrated, discouraged, depressed. He was bummed out because the things he wanted to do, he wasn't doing. And the things he didn't want to do, he was doing. But when we come to chapter 8, it's the exact opposite. This is a chapter of victory, of great conquest, of success. Paul is on top of the world. It's, it's the difference between night and day. And you know what makes the difference? The difference in Paul's life and in your life between defeat and victory is the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, the key word is I. Paul has an I problem. Forty-seven times in those verses he says, I, me, my, myself. And you have the same problem because we are naturally self-centered. And so we, along with Paul, have to come to the realization that living the Christian life is not something that I can do on my own. It's something I have to allow the Spirit of God to do through me. The key word in chapter 8 is the Spirit of God. He's mentioned 18 times in this chapter. And the difference between defeat and victory, the difference between I can't do anything and I can do all things, the difference between just surviving and living it up is the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7 and 8 really take the phrase back in chapter 7 and verse 6 and develop it. It says, we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Oldness of the letter is the theme of chapter 7. Newness of the Spirit is the theme of chapter 8. And so Romans chapter 8 is a chapter all about life in the Spirit. It's all about the benefits and the blessings of having the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in my opinion, in Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter on Christian living in the entire Bible. An old German commentator by the name of Spinner said, if the Bible was a ring... The book of Romans would be its precious stone, and chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. If you stuck me in in an oppressive country where Christianity was disallowed, and you said, Dan, you can only have one chapter to stick in your pocket and pull out when you need it, I would choose Romans chapter 8. This is a fantastic chapter. In fact, it's so great and it's so important that I want us to look at it as a whole this morning. I want us to take a bird's eye view of this chapter. I want us to see the whole picture of the kind of life the Holy Spirit makes possible for us to live. Now notice how it begins in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might want to circle that phrase, those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul loves that phrase, in Christ. He uses it 164 times in the New Testament. And rather than just call us believers, rather than just call us Christians, he likes to call us those who are in Christ. 
And what he's doing is reminding us of our unique relationship with him. You see, we don't just have a casual relationship where we know him. He is in us and we are in him. We are inseparably linked to Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts out this chapter talking about those who are in Christ. And then I want you to notice how he ends this chapter. Last verse, he says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that? The chapter begins and ends with the phrase, in Christ. You can only experience the blessings of chapter 8 if you're in Christ. See, those are the bookends of this chapter. And in between is life in the Spirit. In between is the life you and I are called to enjoy. In between are all the reasons why you and I as Christians ought to be living it up. And so this morning I want to point out eight characteristics of your life in Christ. And I've listed them on the back of your bulletin so you can follow along. Number one, it's a life with no condemnation in verses 1 to 4. Notice verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that's an amazing statement. Because just a few chapters earlier in chapter 3, he said, we all have sinned. And he said that all the world stands condemned before God. And he says, every mouth is closed. We have no more defense. We have no more excuses. And you and I fit into those alls and those everies. We stood before God condemned. We had been declared guilty. We had been sentenced to death. We were just waiting for the executioner to come and deliver his deadly blows. And now we come to chapter 8, and the first thing he says is, no condemnation. You see, if you're a Christian, God is not angry at you anymore. If you're a Christian, the wrath that once hung over your head has been taken away. And what is the condition for no condemnation? Does verse 1 say there is no condemnation for those who are morally in the top 95 percentile? There is no condemnation for those who try their hardest to keep all the rules and regulations. There is no condemnation for those who are trying their hardest to live a Christian life. No. It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason I'm not condemned and the reason you're not condemned if you're a Christian is because Jesus took all that condemnation 2,000 years ago. On the cross, He took our punishment. On the cross, He took our condemnation. He died in our place. And from God's perspective, the case is closed. In John chapter 3 and verse 17, Jesus said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. What's the one condition for being in that group that is not condemned? It's simply this, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, there is no condemnation. 
You say, well, Dan, what about the sin I still struggle with? What about the mistakes that I still make? What about the guilt that I still feel about my past? Well, we're going to talk about that in some detail next week. But let me say this much this morning. No condemnation doesn't mean some condemnation. No condemnation means no condemnation. You see, Paul just said in chapter 7 and verse 15, I am doing the very thing I hate. He said in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. He said in verse 19, the good I wish I do not do. He said in verse 24, O wretched man that I am. And then in chapter 1, of verse, or verse 1 of chapter 8, and there are no chapter divisions in the original New Testament, he says there is no condemnation. Wow. You see, that's the nature of God's forgiveness. That's the nature of God's grace. That's why it's so amazing. Now, we could stop right there, and we would have enough to celebrate on for all eternity. But that's just Paul's first characteristic of life in the Spirit. The second is, it's a life with no domination in verses 5 to 13. And I want you to notice, specifically, verse 12. He says, So, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. As a Christian, I am no longer under obligation to live according to the flesh. Rather, I am under obligation to live according to the Spirit. Now when he says flesh, the simplest definition for the flesh is all that you were and all that you are naturally apart from God. That's the flesh. And as an unbeliever, you had no choice but to live according to the flesh because that's all you were. Now, you didn't realize it at the time, but you were under the domination of your flesh. And Paul kind of spells that out in verses 5 to 8. He says in verse 5 that your mind was set on the things of the flesh. Your mind was set there. All of your thoughts and goals and aspirations and hopes were on the flesh. They were all temporal, pleasing yourself, satisfying yourself, exalting yourself. And then he says in verse 6 that all of that was leading to death. You were living on a dead-end street. You were spiritually dead, soon to be physically dead, and then eternally dead. And then he says in verses 7 and 8, you were hostile to God, you didn't obey God, and you couldn't do one thing to please God. Now that's being dominated by the flesh. It controlled what I thought, it controlled what I did, and it controlled where I was ultimately heading. But in verse 9 he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. God has taken you out of that realm of the flesh, and He has placed you in an entirely new realm, the realm of of the Spirit. And that's why he can say in verse 12, we have no obligation to the flesh. As a Christian, I don't owe my flesh anything. I don't have to obey its desires. I don't have to follow its feelings. 
I don't have to say with Paul in chapter 7, I can't help myself. You see, I'm not bound to that lifestyle anymore. I can now say no to the flesh and yes to God by the power of the Spirit. I am now free to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. I am now free to choose things that actually please God. I am free now to actually experience life and peace. There's no domination. And then the third characteristic. It's a life with no hesitation in verses 14 to 17. You know, some people have the idea that being a Christian is guesswork. You ask them if they're saved and they say, well, I don't know, I, I think so, or I hope so, or someday I guess I'll find out. But that's not the nature of the Christian life. You see, God doesn't intend for His children to go around wondering if they're in or they're out. And that's why He says what He does in verse 16. He says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The one who is a genuine child of God knows it. And he knows it because the Spirit of God who has taken up residency in your life bears witness to your spirit that you are his child. Now you say, well, how does he do that? Well, in the context here, he mentions three ways. Number one, he gives me a new direction in verse 14. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you're a child of God, you're going to know it because God's Spirit is leading you. And when he talks about leading here, he's not talking about the leading of the Spirit the way we often use it. We often use it in terms of where to go to college and what job to take and who to marry. The idea here is not that he's so much spirit leading you physically. What he's saying is that he's leading you spiritually. You see, back in verse 10, he tells us, and if Christ is in you... Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. You see, as a Christian, I'm alive in a dead body. I've been regenerated, but my body hasn't. My body is still tuned into the flesh. It's still oriented toward sin. And that's where the leading of the Spirit of God comes along. You see, he starts to identify in my life those deeds that are out of line with who I am in Jesus Christ. When I become a Christian, I start to sense the Spirit of God inside of me identifying sinful patterns and questionable values and compromising standards and selfish attitudes. He begins to expose that kind of stuff in my life and I start to say, you know, I need to deal with this. As an unbeliever, I didn't deal with it because as an unbeliever, I was a dead spirit in a dead body and there was no conflict there. You see, I had no desire to deal with it before, and I had no power to deal with it before, but now the Spirit of God reveals it to me, and as he says in verse 13, by the Spirit of God, I now have the power to put to death the deeds of the body. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. He bears witness with my spirit by giving me an entirely new direction. Secondly, he gives me a new relationship. Look at verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now before I was a believer, I viewed God as rather distant, rather detached, in fact, rather intimidating. 
I viewed him as kind of a slave master. If he ever got a hold of me, he was going to make me do all kinds of things that I never wanted to do. And so he was someone to be feared. I wanted to stay away from him. And that's what Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 told us. It says, no one seeks after God. We're all like Adam. When Adam, Adam sinned, what did he do? He ran and he hid from God. You see, people outside the family of God might respect God. They might even hold him in high esteem. They might come to his house once in a while. They might convey a kind of respect for him. They might call him the man upstairs or the good Lord. But only a true believer can call him Abba. Abba is an Aramaic word. And it was the first word that usually was formed on an infant's lips. It was comparable to our word, Dada. And what he's saying is the Spirit of God comes inside of me and he changes God in my life from being somebody who's distant, somebody that I want to stay away from, to somebody that I now call out to and say, Dada. You see, that's not natural. That's the work of the Spirit of God drawing me into that new relationship that I enjoy with Him. And then the third way He bears witness with my spirit is He gives me a new ambition. Notice verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. As an unbeliever, my ambition was the comforts of the world, the pleasures of the world, the applause of the world. But when the Spirit of God came into my life at the point of faith, He gave me a new ambition. And that new ambition is to be glorified with Jesus Christ. And nothing in this world compares with that. In fact, in light of being glorified with Jesus Christ, I'm willing to lose everything in this world. I'm willing and ready to suffer with Christ. Now, that's different from unbelievers. Almost every unbeliever I know wants to know what the minimum requirement for heaven is. I want to stay as comfortable as possible and still escape hell. I want to manage to live as I want to live and still get into the family of God. You mean I have to go there and do that and give up this? Whenever there's a cost involved, there's a reluctance. There's a hesitation. There's an unwillingness. What's the minimum requirement? What's the minimum cost? What's the minimum inconvenience? But you see, if the Spirit of God has come into your life, then He will bear witness with your spirit by giving you a new ambition. And that new ambition is future glory. And along with that comes a willingness to say, I'm willing to suffer, if necessary, in the present. You think about Peter and the disciples in Mark chapter 14, when the soldiers came into the garden to arrest Jesus, it says they fled. We want to follow Jesus, but there's going to be some suffering here, so we're getting out of here. Several chapters later in Acts 5.41, those same disciples walked away from the whipping rack and it says they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for His name. Now what's the difference? Well, the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and gave them a new 
ambition. See, I would suggest to you that your life in Christ is a life with no hesitation. You know you're a child of God because the Spirit comes in your life and He bears witness with your spirit by giving you a new direction away from the old into the new. He gives you a new relationship, affection for God as Dada. And He gives you a new ambition to be glorified with Christ no matter what the cost. And then the fourth characteristic It's a life with no desperation. And we see that in verses 18 to 27. Christians are certainly not exempt from suffering. When you became a Christian, did God take away all your problems? No. In fact, you probably got a few extras. You see, the Christian life is not a life with no problems. But it is a life with no desperation. Because even in the midst of our suffering... We have hope. No matter how tough it gets, no matter how great your trials, there's hope. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation in the life of a Christian. And that's really what Paul's saying in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, sure, there's going to be some suffering, but it doesn't even compare with the glory that's coming. See, that's hope. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles Now, that was the understatement of the millennium. Because if you look at Paul's life, you see he was shipwrecked twice, beaten five times, left for dead twice. He was stoned. He was whipped. He was put in jail. He experienced times when he had no food. The guy's life was was one big trial after another. Yet he can say, they are light and they are momentary. See, that's what you call perspective. How did Paul get that perspective? How do we get that perspective? What do we hope for? Well, he mentions a couple things here. He mentions a future resurrection in verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Verse 10 says we are spiritually alive in a dead body. But our hope is this is only a temporary situation because God has promised us a new body. You see, my hope is not invested in this body. I'm not waiting for the miracle cream that helps my hair grow back. My hope is not invested in this body. My hope is invested in the new body that God has promised for me. See, this is just my temporary home. And sometimes suffering helps me realize that. Have you noticed this? Sometimes suffering loosens my grip on this world and restores my longing for heaven. First thing we hope in is a future resurrection, but then there's a second thing we hope in. 
And that's a present intercession. Look at verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you ever been so confused and in so much pain that you didn't know how to pray? We had a baby dedication service this morning. Last week I was up at the hospital in the room with Merlin and Nicole. And Nicole was laying on the bed and Merlin was laying on the bed next to her and he was holding the body of his lifeless newborn child. And he looked up at me through his tears and he said, would you pray for us? You see, he didn't know how to pray. You know what? I didn't either. I didn't know what to say in that moment because the words just don't come. But this passage tells us that when we can't even express the hurt in our hearts, the Holy Spirit prays for us. He looks inside our hearts and He sees the things that we can't see. And He sees the things that we can't say. And He brings those before the throne of God. Even in our weakness, when we don't know how to pray, we have the confident hope that we're having perfect prayers made on our behalf by the Spirit of God. You know, life can be painful and difficult. In fact, in this paragraph, we're reminded there are, there are three groanings in this paragraph. In, in verse 22, it says, Creation is groaning like a mother in labor. This world is groaning. This world is not evolving. This world is devolving. This world is not getting physically better and better. It's decaying. When God made it back in the Garden of Eden, that was as perfect as it was ever going to get. Because since then, since sin entered the world, it's been all downhill. There's more problems and less ozone and it's deteriorating. Everybody's saying, save the earth. Well, it needs saving. But it's not going to happen until a future day. The secondly, verse 23 says, believers are groaning. And why are we groaning? We're groaning because we're anxious to get away from the sin and suffering and sadness of this world. We're groaning because we're eternal people stuck in a temporal dying flesh carton. And then thirdly, he says in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit groans as he prays for us. I really like that. He is so concerned about your pain and your problems that he's groaning for you. You see, God has not promised you a life with no groaning, no tears, no pain. But the groaning in these verses is not a groaning of despair. It's a groaning of anticipation. It's an anxious longing for what God is going to do. And so though we are experiencing pain and pressures and problems, we have a life with no desperation. And then fifthly, it's a life with no miscalculation. Verses 28 to 30. Notice verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together 
for good. God's purpose is always greater than my problems. And God never makes a mistake. If you're a Christian, absolutely nothing ever comes into your life by accident. Nothing. Now, we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out the source of our problems. We've got some problems that come from ourselves and some problems that come from others and some problems come from the devil. And we like to find the source of those. You know why we like to find the source of those? Because we love to assign blame. We're like Adam. He took it like a man. My wife made me do it. We blame people. We blame our circumstances. We blame the government. But see, this verse tells me that it doesn't really matter where those things come from. Because God uses all things. Everything that happens in your life has a purpose. And He allows it because it fits into His plan. Now, what is His plan? What is the good that He's working all things together to accomplish? Well, he tells us in verse 29 in that phrase, to become conformed to the image of his Son. God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. And that's been God's plan from the beginning. When he first created man, he said, let us make man in our image. But when man sinned, the image was distorted. And now God is in a transforming process of taking you and me and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And God uses every trial, every problem, every grief, every hassle, everything in your life to make you like Jesus Christ. And so we can be confident that we have a life without miscalculation. God's not making any mistakes. God's purpose is always greater than your problems because His ultimate purpose is not your comfort. His ultimate purpose is your character. And then sixthly, it's a life with no intimidation. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, the question is not really who is against us, because that might be a long list. The question literally is, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. You know, when I was a little boy, I was a scrawny kid, but I was hard to intimidate. You know why? Because I had a big brother who was for me. Paul is telling us here that God is for us. Now let me just put that into a mathematical equation. One plus God equals a majority. So Christians ought to be the most confident people in the world. There is no one who is able to intimidate you because God is for you. In fact, notice what he says in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We are super conquerors. No matter what comes your way, you are not a victim. You are a victor. 
And when things get you down, it's only because you're letting them get you down. You are a super conqueror in Christ. What is it that you're telling yourself you could never accomplish for the Lord? Well, you need to stop. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Your life in Christ is a life with no intimidation. And then seventh, it's a life with no limitation. Notice verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Now, did you get that? He freely gives us all things. There is no limitation. You see, God has already made the ultimate sacrifice, His Son. He already gave you the most costly gift He could give. He gave His Son on the cross. He loves you that much. Now, don't you think having done that, He loves you enough to also make sure that you have a job and clothes and food and shelter? Don't you think having already done that, that He loves you enough to meet your physical needs and your emotional needs and your spiritual needs on a daily basis. You see, the cross is the guarantee that our life in Christ is a life with no limitation. And then finally, it's a life with no separation. Verses 35 to 39. Paul asks the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he starts thinking of possible separators and he begins to name them. In verse 35, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In verse 38, death, life, angels, demons, present things, future things, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. And then he reaches the conclusion, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. What does that mean? That means you will never go through an experience in life by yourself. Jesus promised, I will never leave you or ever forsake you. See, I don't know what the future holds. But I do know who holds the future. And I do know that I will never face it alone. Our life in Christ is a life with no separation. Now, I hope this morning that you've caught a glimpse of the life that you and I are called to enjoy. It's a life with no condemnation. I don't have to go around buried in guilt because I've been forgiven. It's a life with no domination. I don't have to be controlled by the circumstances or by my old habits. It's a life with no hesitation. The Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. It's a life with no desperation. No matter what suffering or pain I go through, I am filled with hope. It's a life with no miscalculation. God doesn't make mistakes. And even when I do, He works it all together for good. It's a life with no intimidation. With Him on my side, I don't need to fear anybody. 
It's a life with no limitation. He freely gives me all things. And it's a life with no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you are in Christ, this is your life. Live it up. If you can't say that today, if you can't say today, I know I'm in Christ, I would love nothing more than to get to sit down with you and show you how you can come to know Him by faith. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. They're going to lead us in that chorus above all. And as we sing together, I'm going to ask us to stand. I'm going to ask you to come if God has spoken to your heart this morning and settle this most important of all issues in life, your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's stand together as we sing in closing.